0: Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name's Jan Dawson, and with me is Aaron Miller. We've got a few topics for you today and a slight change in format that we're going to be trying out today as well. I'm going to kick things off with a sort of quick fire round on three news items from this week, Uh, and then we'll dive into our question of the week, which is our regular weekly feature, uh, which we've dropped for the last two weeks because it was uh, our end of year predictions episode two episodes ago, and then a CES roundup last week. And then after we do our question of the week, which is on Fitbit and its share price and what's happening there, we'll wrap up with some discussion of the new beta versions of Apple software that were released this week that were rather bigger uh, news than these point releases often are, especially when it comes to iOS. So we'll we'll round up with the discussion of those, and then we'll finish off the episode as we always do with our weekly pick, and and it's uh, Aaron's turn again uh, this week. So uh, that will be the final bit of the episode. Um, the, the three news items that we're going to cover to start things off are um, IDC's PC sales numbers that came out this week for, for the last quarter, um, news that just came out the morning of the day that we're recording this, which is Wednesday, about iAd and Apple stepping back from some of the, the elements of iAd. And then um, the fact that Time Warner is reported to be uh, up for sale and that Apple uh, or other tech companies like Amazon might be a potential buyer for those assets. So that'll be the third of those topics. And we're just going to hit these each pretty quickly. So Aaron, why don't you kick us off on the the PC sales side? Well, you know, it was interesting because you
1: basically had two worlds going. You had Mac sales and Windows uh, PC sales. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it, it shouldn't be surprising that Apple grew, although it was a tiny bit, because it's in a different camp. And there's a, there's a big change on the Windows side with, with with Windows 10. In fact, you know, you predicted this earlier in a podcast. I don't know, it was probably four or five months ago, because with Windows 10 being essentially free to most people, most people were going to be getting an upgrade without having to buy a new computer. Right. And so I think, uh, it, you know, it, all reports say that Windows 10 runs pretty well on a, on, a, on a PC that's, you know, two to three years old. And so I think it just essentially pushed off the upgrade cycle. It'll be interesting to see when that upgrade cycle reboots, but uh, it definitely, like, relieved the pressure for people to feel a need to get a new computer for the holidays.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, IDC is a company that not only tracks past shipments and, and estimates those, but also forecasts shipments. And as I, I think I saw, that they were predicting that PC sales were going to be positive next year if you include you know these two-in-ones and convertibles and so on. Detachables, I guess, is the new category that we're talking about now. Uh, things like the Surface Book, where the screen detaches from the keyboard, for example. Um, you know, So they're actually predicting return to growth next year. That, that still feels overly optimistic to me. And we've kind of talked about this a little bit in the past. But there, there are basically two camps when it comes to PC growth and Windows PC growth. There's a camp that says this is a temporary thing and that at some point it's going to get back to the past patterns of growth or at least stability. And there's another camp that says, you know, this is the shape of things to come. This is kind of a terminal decline at this point, perhaps a slow one, but, you know, a decline that's gonna largely continue unabated. Um, I'm in that latter camp for the most part. I know plenty of people that I I respect a great deal who, uh, like IDC, are forecasting something of a return to growth next year. I continue to be very skeptical about that. I just feel like between longer refresh cycles, between the rise of tablets, mostly not made by uh, Windows PC makers, uh, between um, increased just reliance on mobility in general, increased capability of our mobile devices and so on, um, and the shift to Mac and, and other operating systems. It just feels like there are so many headwinds facing PCs right now that uh, it's gonna have a very hard time getting back to growth again. Um, the other thing is that you know, for Microsoft in particular, even if growth does return to the PC market the way that the Windows 10 operating system is licensed and so on means that they'll see far less revenue than they have done in the past from that business anyway. So, you know, not very good news for Microsoft either way. The good news for them, I guess, being their other businesses are doing better. But uh, interesting to watch certainly over the next next year and, and especially interesting to watch as Apple's results come out in a couple of weeks to see whether the the IDC numbers for Mac sales are accurate or not. Um, So the second topic is this iAd one, and in case you haven't seen it yet, there was a Buzzfeed article um, on Wednesday uh, saying that Apple was stepping back from iAd. And what that actually means in the specifics is not that Apple is going to stop doing iAd as a product, but that it's basically going to be laying off its sales team for iAd and setting up programmatic and automated buying for ads um, on the platform. And it's had some of that already through partners, alongside its direct sales team. Uh, But what's changing now is it's basically going to go all automated buying, no sales team anymore, just let publishers sell their own ads uh, through the platform um, and and basically get out of their way. And this kind of addresses a concern that has been there from the beginning about iAd, which was that Apple was exerting far too much control over it and therefore putting off a lot of advertisers. But it does also seem to be an admission of sort of failure to some extent here. Um, No mention of privacy concerns in any of the reporting about this. Apple obviously hasn't commented directly on any of this yet. Um, But I do wonder if, you know, this is also partly Apple saying, you know, iAd and advertising in general is kind of the one thing that sort of detracts a bit from our message about privacy. And maybe if we kind of take ourselves out of the equation a little bit, that will help with that too. So, any thoughts on that, Aaron? Well,
1: I think the privacy thing is interesting simply because that's mostly a technological issue. That's how the iAd platform works, is the the privacy involved. And it'll be interesting if Apple does make any technological changes in response to advertisers and publishers. I'm doubting that they won't. I'm doubting that they will. I expect that, you know... By and large, publishers still won't have a ton of information about their Mm -hmm. readers. And what that means is if it stays that way, I think it's going to affect the the quality of those advertising. You know, Mm -hmm. the, the, the upside of having more information about you is that advertising is more targeted and therefore theoretically higher quality. And if you've got if you don't have that information, then you're selling ads to the people that are willing to blast out to, you know, an unknown crowd, and a lot of that advertising seems to be, I don't know, playing to baser instincts sometimes, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, and I, it, it, you know, I don't think this means that iAd is secure as a, as an ad platform at all. To be honest, I think it, uh, I, th- I think it's it's basically throwing it out there into the world where it can't be coddled and babied anymore by Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how well it can sustain itself. I mean, as a as an advertising platform, it still has a long way to go. Really, the only major thing it has in its favor is that it's on Apple devices.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, even the news app isn't all that compelling
0: compared to other news sources and just the web generally. Yeah, so. yeah, I'm interested. The, the article mostly focused on mobile app advertising. And yet, to your point, it's in the news app, too. Uh, and the other place it shows up is in uh, iCloud radio. Um, it's iTunes radio, rather. So, you know, if you don't pay for uh, iTunes in the cloud, you, you hear ads when you listen to iTunes radio. Um, and that's iAd as well. And so that's interesting because the kind of quality control there is even more important because you're actually blasting people with audio uh, in the context of listening to music that you're trying to play for them. And so. Um, you know, taking sellers out of the equation, I wonder what they're going to do to maintain quality control there and make sure that you know really obnoxious ads don't end up there as well. So it'll be interesting to watch how that all pans out too and whether that ends up being a separate process and a separate team from the team that sells sort of mobile app ads. Um, But, yeah, in general, I wouldn't be surprised to see Apple back even further out of all of this because of the privacy concerns. I don't think this solves any privacy concerns, but um, I I wonder if it's part of a longer-term strategy to kind of remove Apple from the process of selling ads or maybe farm that out to others to a greater extent than they have done in the past. It is interesting that they've had such a hard time getting good at this. Mm, Yeah, I, I just think it's anathema. I think it's something that they just don't embrace uh, in the way that you have to to be really successful at ads. I think they got into it to try to fix advertising, that's certainly the way Steve Jobs pitched it when they launched iAd back in whenever it was, 2010, Um, and yet, you know, because it's had so little impact as an advertising platform, it's also had very little impact on the quality of ads on iOS. Um, it's certainly non-exclusive, you know, everybody's been welcome to continue using other forms of advertising, and, and they've certainly done that, and that's the majority of advertising today. So it really hasn't achieved the stated objective, or I would expect most other objectives that Apple might have had for it. And so, you know, it's it's just a tricky thing right now, and as I say, it detracts from the overall privacy message as well. So I'm really curious to see what the future of iAd is. Um, the third piece of news we wanted to quickly talk about was just the news that Time Warner um, you know, massive content business that owns HBO, um, TNT, TBS, and other channels. Uh, obviously, the Warner Brothers movie studio and various other content assets uh, might be up for sale again. Um, so Fox made an unsolicited bid a while ago and was rebuffed. Um, stock price is now back below um, kind of the price that they were offering. So they might be a potential bidder. But there have also been reports that both Amazon and Apple. Might be uh, potential candidates for for buying it. Um, you know, having, Uh, written this piece last week about why Apple should buy Netflix. Um, There was a piece with an almost identical title on Fortune Today from Philip Elmer DeWitt titled Why Apple Should Buy Time Warner. Um, But, you know, I I think the rationale is very different um, for for those two. I think uh, there might be a slightly stronger fit for Amazon, but even then I'm not convinced. But there was this wonderful tweet from Steve Case quoting that Fortune magazine article and saying, been there, done that. Uh, Because, of course, Time Warner's been part of an internet company once before. But anyway, any thoughts from you, Aaron?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Whenever there's a rumor about Apple when it comes to media companies, I put a lot more stock in those rumors than I do about hardware rumors or software rumors. And it's because this is an area where Apple has a hard time keeping its intentions quiet. And so if there's a rumor floating around that Eddie Q is paying attention to or sniffing around with the Time Warner, acquisition It's something that I could see happening and put some stock into. Now, whether or not Mm -hmm. it plays out, I think, will depend on a million different factors. But I don't think it's unlikely that Apple is at least considering it. I think it's very likely they're considering it in the same way that, you know, it leaked that they're bidding on NFL games for the Mm -hmm. online broadcast of some of the London games. And so, you know, I think uh, this is an area where Apple can't keep secrets very effectively. I mean, we know why their TV plans sunk, for example, even though Apple's never spoken a word about it. Mm -hmm. And um, and, and I think the way that their TV plans shook out last year was pretty disappointing for them, and not just for the people hoping to benefit from it. And so it wouldn't surprise Mm, me if Apple is mulling a, a big purchase in this regard. In fact, this may be a question of the week we cover next week because I think there are bigger, more interesting implications we might dig into more.
0: Right, right, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm very skeptical about this particular buy for reasons that perhaps we will go into next week, but it'll be very interesting to see what happens to this asset. It, uh, You know, HBO is the big brand here. I mean, the other stuff's valuable too, but HBO is the part that I think it would be of most interest to either Amazon or Apple. Um, it's often compared to Netflix, um, and it has some similarities, it's obviously very different. It's very much tied to a legacy model of TV distribution, even though it's, it's done good work you know, with HBO Now and HBO Go and getting into this newer internet-delivered model, but um, you know, it's, it's nothing like the scale of Netflix in terms of the amount of content available or anything like that on demand. Um, so yeah, I'm very curious to see kind of how this pans out. But uh, I would be very surprised to see either Amazon or Apple buy it. At the end of the day, but never say never, I guess. Um, Okay, well, that does it for a little uh, news roundup there. We'll we'll move on to our question of the week, and as I said, we've taken a kind of two-week hiatus from this format while we've been covering other things, but this is a a regular weekly segment that we do, and we tend to take it in turns to answer these questions of the week, and so this week I'll be answering the questions, and and Aaron will be asking them. Fire away, Aaron. Well,
1: I think, so the big question really that it, that we want answered today is what's happening to Fitbit's share price and why? I mean, they've been in the news because of CES and their stock took a hit after CES, but that decline has continued this week. And it seems like this isn't a CES hangover, but that there may be more serious concerns. So I think the first thing we need to start off with is what You know, take us through, Yan, what Fitbit's business has looked like historically.
0: Yeah, it's actually a pretty healthy business, Um, you know, relatively young company still at this point. Um, But, you know, very fast growing in terms of uh, shipments of their various devices and in terms of revenues as well. You know, um, they're they're profitable, Um, you know, really decent gross margins around 50 percent, you know, operating margins around 20 percent. Um, they've had some tough times in their history. They, they had to recall one of their devices called the Fitbit Force, um, so that didn't didn't go well for them and impacted their margins for a while. But if you ignore that um, financial impact, there the financial has actually been very healthy overall, um, pretty consistent. Um, and, uh, you know, they've continued to bring out new products pretty regularly. They've, they've got quite a range of products now. Um, which have been fairly popular, and as I say, have, have enabled them to grow rapidly. They've been diversifying their business beyond the U.S., which was their main market by far for a long time. Um, you know, growing in uh, Asia Pacific in particular. You know, decent size in Europe now as well. Um, so lots of lots of things that were kind of good about their business, and, and certainly you know, just under a year ago, when they IPOed, um, you know, business was looking in really pretty good shape. Talk about the IPO then, which happened last year. Um,
1: yeah. I remember at the time of the podcast expressing some skepticism about the IPO. I think right. I, I said it was it was equivalent to um, Cisco buying uh, the. Uh, um, now I forgot the name of the camera company, which tells you, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> flip, yeah, the flip, flip, flip yeah, cameras. Whatever the name uh, of the know, company instead, was. There, but yeah. instead of it being a you know a private company purchase, it was a, a public offering.
0: Mm-hmm. Anyway,
1: talk mm-hmm. us through the IPO.
0: Yeah, so IPO was interesting. So, you know, financially they looked like they were in really good shape. They'd got past that Fitbit forced recall, so the finances had kind of bounced back and you know, with the rapid growth and decent profitability, it was a good time to IPO and yet the IPO filing itself which I think came in early May about a month and a half before the IPO itself um, I, I did a breakdown on the beyond devices blog of some of the numbers from the filing and you know one of the key worries that I had then and I think it's probably what we talked about a year ago or, or back when the IPO happened on the podcast as well is there was a lot of evidence in that filing uh, from some of the numbers that Fitbit supplied that they had a very high abandonment rate. There was, you know, maybe as high as fifty percent abandonment rate, where well, their number of active users was far lower than the number of devices that they'd sold. Um, and didn't seem to be, you know, growing anywhere near as fast as their shipments were growing. And so, you know, there there were worrying signs there. And I'd done surveys a few months before in preparation for, um, you know, Apple to announce something around a watch in which I'd asked people about fitness devices. And I'd found that similar sort of 50% abandonment rate in those surveys that I'd done. So my main concern was just that, This is backed by personal anecdotal evidence as well that people use fitness trackers for a while and then they've kind of told them everything that they need to tell them and then they stop being so useful. So, you know, in my case, I used a Fitbit for a period of time to measure, you know, how many calories I was burning when doing certain kinds of exercise. And you very quickly learn, okay, that workout burns about 400, 500 calories, you know, and on days that I take the dog for a walk, I burn this many calories. And on days when I go to the gym, I burn that many calories. And, you know, on days when I just sit at my desk and do nothing, um, you know, I burn this many calories and that becomes very predictable. And so unless your fitness device is able to tell you something more than that, it, it, it's stickiness is is not great. And especially if you start to leave it at home by mistake, if you lose it, if you break it. If it just stops working, you know, you're much less likely to replace it once you've got to that point. And that's why I think you see such a high abandonment rate. What's interesting is that since the IPO, Fitbit stopped reporting a lot of the metrics that I used to, to derive those numbers. And I suspect it's because they were aware that they didn't paint a very flattering portrait as far as kind of how long people were sticking with the devices. Um, On the other hand, you know, they've continued to sell more and more of their devices. You know, revenues and profits have continued to be good um, since the IPO. So, you know, through a lot of last year, their share price rose fairly significantly. But then towards the end of the year, uh, things started to drop down to levels that were pretty similar to to the IPO price itself.
1: What's happened since? I mean, they, uh, you know, they've had seven months roughly. From the IPO up until CES, talk us through what's mm-hmm. been going on.
0: Yeah, so CES was not good for them, and we talked about that briefly last week. So they announced a new device, which should have been really good news. It's the Fitbit Blaze. It's a smartwatch. Um, it's a two hundred dollar device, so it's at the higher end of the range of their current set of devices. Um, they've been slowly increasing the kind of average selling price of their devices by releasing more higher end devices over time, and. That's gone quite well for them in the past, but the reaction to the Blaze in particular was really bad. And as we talked about last week, part of the reason is that they seem to be going head-to-head against smartwatch vendors who are much stronger than most of its competitors are in the kind of direct fitness space where they've participated until now. And so it feels like a loss of focus. It feels like their investment's going into an area that... They're not likely to do anywhere near as well as they have done in the past. The Fitbit Blaze itself is not a great device. It, it's fine for as a fitness tracker, but as a, as a smart watch, when you're kind of moving into more of a fashion category, it's really pretty ugly and clunky. It's got really big bezels, looks quite plasticky and cheap. You know, I, I played with one at the show last week, and it, it just isn't impressive at all and, and, and really pales into insignificance beside not just the apple watch but most of the recent android wear watches which have got a lot better on that front as well so it just feels like a lack of focus it feels like it's the wrong place to be investing right now Um, but that's not the only bad thing that's happened so fitbit's also facing a lawsuit over the quality of the data from some of its trackers Uh, so there's a class action lawsuit from users saying you know the data that you're providing isn't very good isn't very accurate Um, so there's you know at least those two pieces of bad news and then The problem with Fitbit has been that it always felt like that bubble might burst eventually just because of the high abandonment rate because of the entry of companies like Apple, also the entry of companies like Xiaomi out in China who are making very cheap wearable devices that that significantly undercut the Fitbit. There have been all these potential... Uh, problems for them looming on the horizon so i think once people started getting worried about the here and now then all those other things started to pile on top and so you've seen a very significant reduction in the share price over the last couple of weeks
1: so is there a chance for fitbit to rebound here i mean that you know brand loyalty doesn't seem to be something they can rely on a lot because this is still a pretty new category and they're a Um, you know, CES seemed to be them showing their hand or at least their best play, and that was a big disappointment. So is there is there a way for Fitbit to turn this around and find a place?
0: Yeah, the best possible outcome would be that they don't overinvest in the blaze. I mean clearly they've done the R and D investment already, comes out in March, I think, so you know, we'll see how well it sells when it comes out. But They've still got all their other products and so for people who don't want that product um, their other products should continue to sell reasonably well you know if they remain focused on those and continue to innovate around those core fitness devices then that could still you know do better for them and and they might be able to weather that you do still have those worries though about you know these cheaper Chinese devices coming into the market you've got worries about apple encroaching on their space from the high end you know not that anybody's buying apple watches as pure fitness trackers but they do it very well and you know for a device that somebody's buying for another reason anyway um you know an apple certainly would have stronger brand loyalty um you know that's that's a threat too um and you've got companies like under armor now getting into the fitness devices business to complement all the apps they've bought over the last few years um they just announced you know a new app at ces as well called record um which records all your activity from a variety of different sources they brought out a couple of devices together with htc um that are bundled together in this health box um bundle of of devices and and trackers and so on. So, you know, there there are new threats all the time. And so, um, you know, I think if they stick to their core business, I think if they refocus back on those fitness devices and start innovating around those and figuring out where else they can take that, I think that's the key for them. But even if they do that, you know, there are some significant barriers to future success and significant threats to the business. So there's, there's no guarantee that even if they do that and, and kind of get past the blaze and the negative reaction to that, that, that things will really turn around for them.
1: So I compared Fitbit earlier to Flip and Cisco bought Flip and then ended up shuttering it because cell phones, mm-hmm. t- because smartphones took over the the mobile recording market and, um, You know, I I don't think that's the only interesting comparison. Another company that comes to mind right now is actually TiVo. Because TiVo was a trailblazer in the DVR space. And, you know, I think considering how easily commoditized the core feature of a DVR is and, and how it has been commoditized over time, the fact that TiVo is even still alive as a company is pretty impressive. You know, it makes me wonder if there are lessons for Fitbit to learn there. Both in terms of how they can keep themselves relevant in what is an emerging but increasingly commoditized market, um, and also just sort of what they and their investors can expect in the long run.
0: Yeah, TiVo is fascinating because um, they really they solved a problem in a way that was an interim to the permanent solution. So, you know, recording the shows from linear TV so that you could watch them later was basically a kludgy way to get to watching what you want when you want right so you know that's the use case um, or the 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 goal of the consumer is I want to watch the stuff that I like to watch whenever I want to watch it and of course what's happened since TiVo came out is we've got video on demand in in multiple different forms now you've had you know rentals and, and sales on iTunes you've had Netflix with its subscription video on demand model. You've got cable companies more and more bundling in uh, on demand for current TV shows. You've got Hulu that's very good at that, too. So you've got lots of options now for watching what you want. Um, Obviously, skipping ads was part of it, too. But, you know, Netflix doesn't show ads. Hulu has an ad-free option. So you could argue that TiVo was sort of an interim solution to a problem that's now been solved in other and arguably better ways. Um, what's been the salvation for TiVo has been doing deals with a lot of the pay TV operators to become their sort of provider of DVR technology. So the satellite companies and and cable companies still have a very strong incentive to sell boxes um, that record programming because that's an additional revenue stream for them. So TiVo has arguably been kept alive by that. And so the question is for for, for, uh, Fitbit is, one, you know, are they doing the same thing TiVo did, where they're solving a problem that's ultimately going to be solved in some better, more sustainable, more efficient way? And, and arguably with the rise of both smartphones and smartwatches, that may well be the case, that these things will just be features baked into something else rather than standalone devices. The other question is, are there partnerships they can do? Are there other things that they can do to uh, find people that have incentives that are kind of aligned with theirs so that they can get additional sources of funding? And, you know, insurance companies, large employers that self-insure their employees for health reasons and so on, um, they, you know, are starting to look at subsidizing fitness devices that help people to stay healthier. And so, you know, I think Fitbit really needs to be working within those programs to try to find companies that are willing to sponsor ownership of Fitbit devices because their incentives there are aligned. You know, if these really do generate health benefits and if employees and and, uh, insurance customers are willing to wear these things, then that might be somewhat analogous to what the cable companies have done with TiVo. So there may be some opportunities there and Fitbit should very much be looking at that. Um, at this point. But, you know, I'd say even with TiVo, you know, they've had a reprieve, but even then their finances aren't looking great. You know, over the longer term, you'd have to say that business starts to go away anyway. Uh, And, you know, with Fitbit, it may well be that the, the drive towards other devices that incorporate fitness tracking capabilities ends up being a stronger force than whatever else they're able to cobble together. There's
1: a lot of truth to that. We have a TiVo right now, but I'm almost positive it's the last one that we'll ever buy Right. Um simply because I mean we have got the new the 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 fourth generation Apple T V and it's already starting to replace the TiVo for us. I, I think if there's ever a really convenient even just live streaming, let alone recorded mm. streaming of, you know, over the air channels, I I think we're officially done with our TiVo at that point. So
0: Right. Yeah. Well any last thoughts? That was a fascinating rundown. Yeah, I think we've covered it. I think we've covered it. Great. So I think we're probably good, yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our final topic, which is the the beta software that Apple released this week um, for essentially all of its major platforms. So we had iOS 9.3, we had a new version of tvOS, we had, I think, Apple Watch OS, t- I think it's 2.2 at this point, and then a new version of El Capitan as well, um, all landing essentially at the same time. And I think the iOS version was the one of the biggest point releases that we've seen for a long time. I mean, last year we had, uh, I think it was 8.4, that brought um, some significant new functionality, but it was really in one major area, which was music. Um, But uh, other than that, the the big uh, advancements have tended to come in the major um, annual releases. And at the same time, the other thing that was kind of unusual was that Apple actually put up a page... On the Apple website as a preview of this, because this is just a developer beta at the moment, you know. And there are other people that do get access to these, but um, you know, it's unusual for Apple to be so public about what's in this new version and, and trying to sell some of the features. So, what stood out to you the most from from the iOS update? One
1: of the first things was um, the feature they called Night Shift. Um, this is where it dims. It, it essentially reduces the amount of blue light coming out of your screen. Um, so that when you, sorry, at nighttime. So when you're reading your iPad or your iPhone in bed, um, there's research that shows that blue light, which occurs more naturally in sunlight, but not so in the incandescent or fluorescent lights we have in our homes, uh, blue light, it I think what it does is it, it increases production of melatonin, which is, which effectively keeps us awake. And the idea is that if, if we get into more orange light or just darkness generally, you're supposed to be able to sleep better. And so a bunch of us that have had our devices next to us or, or you know, in bed have been um, keeping ourselves awake with these devices. And so Night Shift is a feature built to address that. It actually... Um, was referenced by multiple people as as being another move by apple to sherlock a company if you're not familiar with sherlocking it's a reference to years ago when os10 first came out that um apple i guess os9 yeah mac os9 where they built an app called sherlock that was a, a mimic of a um of a of another app called watson and uh it, it essentially baked into the OS uh, a software feature that people were paying for. There's a there's a there's a software thing that was put out earlier in the year called Flux, which essentially was a side-loaded app that allowed you to to do this on your phone or iPad. Um, Apple shut that down pretty quickly because they don't um, allow for side-loading of apps with their developers, um, as far as the public is concerned, and so. Uh, I'm not sure that it's true. It's a true Sherlocking this this uh, night shift feature because flux was never something that was much of a uh, you know a profitable product anyway. But I think it'll be interesting because I think we're going to put to test this idea that uh, it's the blue light that's causing the problem versus having a device in your face at all before you go to sleep. You know, I, I think the research on this is mostly focused on. Um, whether your device is on or off before you're going to sleep, and and uh, it'll be interesting to see if there really is a difference in blue light versus orange light as you're you know trying to 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 put the day to an end and get some sleep.
0: yeah, yeah. and when whether it's the light or whether it's just the fact that you're keeping your brain pretty occupied with stuff and and not just allowing your brain to start to switch off as well. so right, because if you yeah, read some Facebook that.
1: comments that make you really mad, that's what's keeping you right. awake. it's not the blue light <laughs> exactly
0: exactly. Um, one of the other things I thought was really interesting was some of the education features, and I think that even got its own page on the uh, Apple website within that preview section. Um, you know, this clearly sort of uh, aimed at iPads and schools, uh, where Chromebooks have really been doing very well over the past year or two. Um, there's been some interesting stories recently about the fact that Chromebooks are tracking user behavior, in other words, kids' behavior, and somehow reporting that back in some form to. To Google and, and some sort of backlash against that, but you know Chromebooks have been selling extremely well. They're, they're cheap. They're very simple. Basically, just a web browser. Um, you know, I know our kids' school um, has, has used Chromebooks. They use iPads as well, interestingly. So they, it's not an either-or thing necessarily. Um, but the, the new features include multi-user. Uh, features on, on iOS and on iPad such that you can have an iPad and, and each kid can, who uses the iPad can log into it separately and have their own profile and settings and so on pulled up. So um, interesting there, some new administrative features as well, I think, um, around all of that, which at least some of the people I've seen talking about this who work in education have been very excited about um, something that these things, the iPads haven't done super well so far and that Chromebooks have arguably done a bit better.
1: Well, I made a case when the iPad Pro came out that it was actually going to be a an attractive product in education, and there are others that I read that kind of you know scoffed at the idea because it's so expensive, but I think Apple is laying the groundwork for the iPad Pro to be even more competitive in education. Now it is expensive, but I could picture teachers having iPad Pros when their students have Minis or, or iPad Airs, um, and. Uh, and these features seem oriented toward that. Like, for example, the classroom app that uh, Apple made, so that a teacher can manage his or her classroom through this app. It's pretty cool. Um, you know, I, I one thing I'm excited about or hopeful about, it, I should say, is that this education feature of multiple users per iPad is something that they'll spin into uh, iOS ten. Um, I think there's a bunch of, there's, there's a lot that's useful about having separate profiles on an iPad. Um, you know, for example, when I have my profile as I use my iPad for work uh, and then I, you know, let my kids play on the iPad in the evening or something, I, I would rather not have the apps that I use accessible to my kids. Right. Yeah. And so I'm hopeful that, they, that this is laying like the groundwork for them to spin this off into a feature that's available to everybody. Um, yeah. it, it really is remarkable that Apple has put so much effort into a .dot a, a one update. I mean, you know, not a major update, and not just effort in the quality of the update, but also effort into publicizing it, which to me is pretty fascinating.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, that is interesting. This is um, the first
1: time they've made this big of a deal out of a .dot yeah. three or whatever update.
0: Right, right, and, and not, you know, I mean, Apple Music last year, you know, they'd already announced Apple Music and then the, the release came out, you know, and this is a beta, and and yet they're already promoting all the stuff that's coming with it, uh, you know, to, to mainstream users as well, which is kind of interesting to me. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, to your point about, you know, multiple profiles on, on non-education iPads, it's, it's you know, family sharing, even though Apple has a feature that's called that, but family sharing of single devices is still something that Apple doesn't support anywhere near well enough. and iPads are clearly shareable devices, they're, they're often, you know, devices that are owned in families where multiple different people use them, uh, and, you know, one of those people, two of the people may be adults that have email and other sort of sensitive information on there that they don't want the kids to get access to, and the, the solutions for that so far have been really subpar, so I'm very eager to see how that changes. You know, we, we've had a, a Nexus 7 tablet that um, I bought a few years ago just to play around with. and. One of the things I've always really liked about that is that it has very easy switching between user accounts and you can protect some of the user accounts with passwords. Um, they have nice little pictures on the lock screen that you, can, you know the kids can easily pick the one that represents them. Uh, and then they they were released into a world where only the apps that you've set up for them are available. Uh, and it's you know a few times that my kids have played with it, it's been really nice to know that you know I can just let them have at it because there's no way they can get into the stuff that I don't want them to get into. And you know whichever of my kids is using it, as long as they stay in the part that's for them, you know they won't be exposed to anything that they shouldn't be exposed to either, from perspective of content or anything else. So you know I, I, I see a lot of potential for that coming to the iPad as well. Another
1: feature update that I think
0: supra- that is showing a sign of a bigger thing is
1: the update to notes, and the mm-hmm. fact that you can touch ID protect or password protect your notes, mm-hmm. um, and also they've added. It's a tiny feature, but they've added the ability to sort notes by date created, date modified, or alphabetically. These little tiny refinements reflect something that happened with iOS nine, which is that I think Apple, interestingly enough, kind of stumbled into something that a lot of people wanted. Um, mm-hmm. There were various note-taking apps out there, but none that really, I don't know, had the right mix of features. And Apple seems to have hit it right on the head with notes. In fact, I've seen you know a lot of people in reviewing note-taking software for mobile devices have made a big deal out of the fact that their favorite version is notes. Their favorite software to use is is the notes app right. that Apple's put out. And yeah. having a really strong note-taking app on a mobile device because it's such a common feature, it's just it's such mm-hmm. a common use case for a mobile device. Adds a lot of stickiness for Apple, right? I mean, they have this great Notes app. My wife uses hers like crazy, and if she ever had to leave it for another device, like an Android device, it'd be it'd be annoying for her. And right. so, it, I think Apple with iOS nine kind of, you know, found a little vein of gold that they hadn't yet reached, and. This time in this update that they're making a big deal out of the passer protect the sorting and that kind of stuff shows right. that they've realized that it's now a big deal to people. And so they're trying to improve it even further.
0: Yeah, I'm curious to see if we see the kind of Touch ID protection for other apps as well. You know, I mean, my attitude is always, okay, you know, my my phone is locked with Touch ID and therefore everything on it is pretty protected from other people. But again, sometimes you hand your phone to a kid or something and you'd rather they couldn't get into your email or your calendar or your Twitter account or whatever without, you know, some kind of protection. And so. I do wonder whether Apple will start to enable that on a per-app basis or in other more granular ways as well, because it, it, it could be very useful. But yeah, with Notes, it does feel like they they're finally taking it seriously. Basically, yeah. that they, you know, it started out as a sort of okay, you know, check a box here. We'll have a Notes app, you know, and feels like they're they're taking it seriously as a potential sort of Evernote alternative or OneNote alternative. You know, these cross-platform apps that exist. You know, Notes is starting to become a bit more of a competitor to those now with all the new features they've added, both between iOS 9 and now this new update.
1: Yeah. Anything else on iOS
0: 9.3?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, the other updates to watchOS, I think it's interesting that Apple's going to have, that you can have multiple watches connected to a single iPhone. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like the use cases out there now. You have to be a pretty wealthy person that is highly fashion sensitive, <laughs>
0: to mm-hmm. have, yeah.
1: to be interested in wearing multiple watches. I suspect that they're laying the groundwork for things to come, like for example, the rumors that Apple's planning a fitness band, um, and so, I, I mean, there can't be that many people right now who are really excited about being able to pair two watches to their phone. Um, right. So I think that's a feature that will play itself out and. The next couple of months, um, the TVOS update for me—I don't know. I'm excited about folders. You know, since since we gave our boys a, an Apple TV for Christmas, they've gotten quite a few games on it, and I don't know. Just seeing all these disorganized—you know—I've tried to arrange them. You know, at least group them in that mm-hmm. big, long, scrolling—you know—vertical scrolling list of apps. Right. And I'm excited to get some sorting going.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to see sort of the implementation of that. I've seen a lot of people push back on the um, task switching interface now, which apparently mirrors the one on iOS where you get sort of overlapping icons rather than sort of separate big full-size versions of the apps. Um, People saying, no, put it back, put it back, I don't like this. Um, I hardly ever use that, to be honest, so I don't think it's going to affect me very much.
1: Yeah, but but, I mean, the truth is, this is just showing the fact that we're all figuring out this new Apple TV, Apple mm-hmm. included,
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, yeah when, I mean, it's pretty early on to make a change like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, when when folders, you know, or the, the, the way the task switcher looks is the marquee feature of this update, um, it just shows that Apple's not even sure what they have yet entirely, and, right. and neither are we.
0: Yeah it's interesting they bought back uh, support for bluetooth keyboards as well which is you know another thing the old apple tv had along with obviously the apple remote app which both of which were bafflingly sort of absent when they first released the new apple tv and were kind of signs of how quickly they got it out the door um, so it feels like there's a lot of stuff that's still kind of catching up that should have been there at the beginning and that they just weren't quite ready with that's sort of showing up now in these point releases. So
1: maybe that means someday I can play Zork on my Apple TV. There
0: you go. There you go. Yeah, I saw some people talking about, you know, using keyboards to to work with games. And there's some technical reasons why that won't work in quite the way that you might hope it will. But there's some scope for it, I guess, from what I understand. So. Um, the one interesting thing was that there was an El Capitan release but I haven't really seen many details about what's in that. That seems to have been largely a maintenance release rather than um, something that brought a whole load of new features which you know, kind of fits with a pattern of more incremental sort of stability type releases for that platform.
1: Hopefully they're at least getting the password protection going on the,
0: on the uh, Mac site as well on for notes. On notes, yeah. That'll be interesting to see, yeah. Any other thoughts on these beta releases from this week? No, I, I,
1: I'm, I'm hoping it's a, it's a sign of things to come, right, that mm. Apple doesn't hold off on certain feature updates to the right. annual calendar, but if stuff yeah. is ready, they ship it out and publicize it and you know get it out to people in a more useful um, schedule.
0: Yeah, no, and it's good timing because it's almost sort of not quite, but getting on towards sort of halfway. Well, by well, the time it comes out to the public, which is presumably maybe a few weeks from now, It'll be roughly the halfway point between the last release and the next annual release. So good timing in that sense. And, yeah, if they keep doing that, then that's a good sign, I suspect. Um, Okay, well, let's wrap up with our weekly pick, and it's it's your turn here again. So uh, over to you. So I want to recommend a
1: card game that we got our boys for Christmas. This was actually recommended by Jason Snell and Dan Morin over at Six Colors. They put out a favorite board games and card games uh, article, which I used last year to buy some games for my boys and used again this year to buy some games. Um, They have some great recommendations there. The one I want to bring to our attention is a card game called Super Fight, which is kind of barely a card game. There are cards involved, but it's actually (laughs) just an excuse to have a big argument, Um, but a a very fun argument. Um, The essence of the game is you have white cards and black cards, and the white cards identify the superhero that you are advocating on behalf of. And the black cards represent attributes for that superhero. And what's really fun is that these, uh, um, th- these the, the people who wrote this game are incredibly creative. And so you come up with all kinds of hilarious, hilarious combinations. Now, there are, diff- there, there's, there are some basic rules for playing the game. You know, where you pick, you get to pick your choice of three white cards and your choice of three black cards, and then you have a, another black card forced upon you because not all the attributes are positive, many of them are negative. My favorite moment over the holiday came when my boys were playing it, and uh, they just decided to leave it all up to chance rather than being able to choose your attributes. So they just picked one white card and two black cards. And then, they, oh, I forgot to mention, the idea is you have your superhero, and then your opponent has their superhero. And you essentially try to convince everybody else playing the game which superhero would win in the fight. Right. And, okay. uh, and so this crazy combination of features makes them for some really lively arguments. And yeah, no the idea is just to, is just to persuade everybody else to vote for your superhero if they if the two if the two heroes had a fight. Right. Well, my favorite was when my son Thomas, doing the random version of the game, drew a. Uh, a naked person, that was his superhero, and then the attributes were, is a baby, and then the other attribute was wearing a robotic exoskeleton, which was (laughs) hilarious. But then the best moment came when his cousin drew his black card, and the black card he drew said that you get to steal an attribute from from your opponent. So, of course, he stole the robotic (laughs) exoskeleton, and Thomas had to pick a replacement attribute, and the attribute was in a burlap sack. (laughs) So (laughs) Thomas was a naked baby in a burlap sack. And it was hilarious listening to him try to win this argument against his opponent, which was like a smoke monster wearing a robotic exoskeleton and firing. I can't remember what Uh like glue, glue (laughs) out of a super glue out of a hose or something like that. And it just was hilarious. And the game is really funny. There, there are, there are, you know, I don't even know how many millions and millions of possible combinations of superheroes. You have to be, you have to do with people that you like, um, and and people that have fun and don't get too caught up in an argument. Because if this if mm. this becomes a point of pride, the game can get less pleasant. But uh, right. anyway, you can, the the game is called Super Fight. They also have additional decks that you can buy to add more attributes or other features, including, if you're interested, a more adult version of the game. So. A lot of options, but a lot of
0: fun. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for recommending that. We'll put a link to that along with links to all the other stuff that we've talked about, including the news items that we started out with, uh, my Fitbit post, uh, and uh, some other stuff uh, on the website, as always, at podcast.beyonddevices. We thank you for being with us, as always. Uh, We look forward to being with you again next week. We welcome your feedback and comments, so please leave those on the website. Leave us a review on our iTunes page um, or send us a a tweet or an email. We'd be happy to hear from you. Thanks very much.